Welcome to Found in Translation, a weekly-ish exploration of one fellow's translation of the Christian scriptures, one chapter or two at a time. I'm Brandon Rhodes, and across the internet for me is the translator himself, Brandon Johnson. Hi, Brandon. Hi, Brandon. Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. Hey, uh, what beverage is keeping you warm this evening? I have uh, a chocolate martini going tonight. Ooh. How do you make it chocolate? Um, it's vodka and uh, creme de cacao and half and half. So basically like a white Russian, but with creme de cacao instead of, uh, you know, the coffee liqueur stuff. But, I cannot yeah. believe. How does this always happen? Mm-hmm. What, what do you got going? I'm having a white Russian. <laughs> Very similar. Yeah. Oh, Cheers. That's remarkable. Yeah. 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 It's. You know, we're uh, we are recording this in the second week of October, and apparently we are just ready for sweater weather and uh, putting cow products in alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's apparently what fall means, right? I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, if you're not on Team Pumpkin Spice, everything. Yeah. No, that's when I go with my uh, spice spiced rum. Uh, you know, the oh, there you hot go. hot buttered rum kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So we are talking this week about Matthew chapters 17 and 18, and we're going to work our way through it just a little bit differently. We have been re-listening to our own episodes and engaging more with listeners and have gotten some great feedback. Uh, One of them is it would be, it was really helpful a few episodes ago when we began to more predictably cite the verse and footnote and then it got more helpful once we began to more regularly read the verse or the sentence or two around it so this is us saying we're gonna experiment this this episode with reading absolutely like the full paragraph or so where a verse lives it might be just a sentence it might be a whole paragraph but we want to make sure that you aren't constantly having to whip your phone out and say oh wait which verse was it and then swipe down to it and try finding it again you might be driving or grocery shopping or doing the dishes or cooking you don't necessarily have a free hand or focus to do this so we're going to be making the effort to uh, queue up your mind so you're you're not expected to know you know verse 4 footnote G oh yeah that's the one about booths Uh, (laughs) so yeah, Does anyone gonna... know the one about booths, Brandon? Uh, I mean, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's what we're going to do. So, well, if you haven't read this translation for these chapters, 17 and 18, we're not going to read the whole thing to you, but you can find it through a link in the episode notes. So, And check out the footnotes there. So go ahead and uh, give it a read before we read parts of it back to you. Welcome back. So let's begin with verse two, footnote C. Now we're going to start uh, the beginning of the chapter here. Just give a little bit of context. Uh, Six days later, Jesus brought Jacob, his brother, John and Peter up a high mountain with him to a secluded place. There he transformed before their eyes, his face shone like the sun and his clothes glowed bright like the light. Then incredibly, they saw Moses and Elijah talking with him. Thank you. So as as you hinted at in your uh, accenting there, the inflection, yeah, your inflection, thank you, is uh, the word transformed. Typically, this is the story about it's called the transfiguration. And that's mm-hmm. what happens to Jesus. He is transfigured, which is not a word that really is used like literally anywhere else outside of reflection. Not necessarily, not just about this story, uh, that word transfigured to describe what happens to Jesus has uh, 
developed in Christian thinking to, to what I find to be a, a fairly lovely use of the, you know, kind of the, the hope and the promise of the healing of the cosmos is mm. the transfiguration of the cosmos. Like it's not meant to be exactly metaphysically whatever happens here in this story, but the same sort of poetic energy, like this is a window mm. of, of mystery and, um, a mystery of perhaps a bright light rather than of darkness that uh, mm, yeah. colors uh, our hope in Christ, in Yahweh for all things. It's a lovely idea. Mm-hmm. So sounds like you're bringing into it ideas of new creation or renewed creation. And like, this is like maybe the first step in that direction. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and at least I, I'd be curious. I don't know how this word quite got to be used in that way and it's not used by everybody but um this one has i suppose as a religious technical term has a trajectory that i don't i i am not aware of any hostility emerging from it or problems that are subsequent to it uh and but you know your goal isn't to change things just because they're bad but like if they're religious technical words let's read it slant if this is the only place this word has ever experienced by anyone reading this, then that's probably not the right word. Um, you know, not that it's wrong per se, but not helpful. And yeah, so same. I don't think I've ever encountered anything that feels especially problematic about the word transfigured. Um, but it's, I think, I think really what it is, is it's really outdated. I think it's a really old word that like has hung on here, but not anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where it's become like a theological term instead of what it really meant, which was just like being transformed. Um, the 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 Greek word is metamorphizo. So another way you could translate this was was he metamorphized before their eyes. Um, Ooh, I kind of like that. Like he's a butterfly. Yeah. Or uh, what's What's the famous short story about a person turning into a, a bug? Uh, the metamorphosis. Who is that by? Sounds like Kafka. Um, yes. Hey, yes. That's it. Yeah. Kafka. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and also I think of like growing up with like the books Animorphs where people turn oh, into animals. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Remember those covers? Yeah. Um, it's just weird stories like that. So metamorphize feels strange or like metamorphic rocks. If you know mm-hmm. anything, I think, I think that's right alongside I- igneous and sedentary sedimentary it, sedimentary. Yeah. Sediment sedentary is how I am. They, uh, that's how all rocks are sedimentary is rocks. Yeah. So whether it's anamorphs or metamorphic rocks or whatever metamorphism metamorphized is a weird word uh-huh. it's it's also not a common word that we use right mm-hmm. so it's not not the best way to translate this but that is like essentially the greek word metamorphizo that's that's where that comes from and it just means transformed mm-hmm. it doesn't have any more specific meaning than that it's just something was one thing and then the form of it changed to something else. End of definition. Um, and that's what it says here. And so it really shouldn't be a specific word for this one event like we use it because it's not that specific of a word. Like um, if, if Matthew were creating a new word of like sort of cementing together a couple of other Greek words to make some sort of compound thing to express what he's trying to say. Sure. That was an option, but it's not what happened. It's like, this is an off the shelf word. Yeah. This is a word that just existed and was used for all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. If it was the former, then yeah, we would keep like, he's using what he has found. He's developed a technical, well, not technical, but a, a unique term. And we're going to preserve the, mm-hmm. that uniqueness for sure. But he's, he's using a fairly cardboard word here. Right. And so transfigured has ended up becoming a technical term for, you know, current day English speakers. And I, it kind of makes me ask, well, why, 
why is that the word that has to be used here and and nowhere else because transformed appears other places mm-hmm. but but why is here where english translations use transfigured instead mm-hmm. genuine question i don't know do you have any guesses is that a <laughs> i i have a guess but it feels cynical and i don't like it Oh, I see what it is in our own like hosting notes here. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> that the, is a little the cynical. notes the notes that I am, I provided. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, like the idea that this is some sort of, um, well, I mean, I think this is the typical because this tradition that we came from evangelicalism has such a strong cultural emphasis around conversionism and persuasion and winning, like its origins and fundamentalism and flexing well yeah in flexing um in beating those um you know european liberals or whatever and then like the the urgency of winning souls and converting people and winning arguments uh there's this so much winning yeah there's a real nervous energy that that kind of mindset brings to the sacred texts. And in this case, what it does is makes anything interesting or novel said about Jesus into some sort of shortcut of see how he's this boss ass guy. Like he's see, he's actually God. <laughs> uh huh. He's yeah. actually, he's actually Yahweh. And it's like, I mean, cool. Yeah. I'm with you. But also not on this text. Like that's not has nothing to do with what this is saying. Yeah, yeah, he's not going around like doing miracles and then being like, I'm also totes Yahweh. Like that's not what he's doing. Yeah. And it's not the punchline to every cool thing he does or is said about him. And in this yeah. case, it's not just some sort of weird flex. Right. Yeah. There there was no such thing as a 18th century, 19th century, 20th, 21st century atheist that was somehow being proved wrong because Jesus glowed. <laughs> I worship a nightlight. Yeah, it, it's not it. No. And when we insist on making everything where Jesus is particularly awesome in some interesting way about proving atheists wrong we miss what it's actually saying yeah yeah there's always a deeper thing happening than and look he moved the pigs over there or mm-hmm. you know it's like that's amazing and there is certainly a, a profound and provocative and uncomfortable deeper argument being had that's much more contemporary than a cool story about doing something magical. I take most all those stories as being historically rooted and stuff like that, but like that's not actually the most important point, like at all. No, the There's significance power. of it isn't that it happened, it's what it meant. Yes. Yeah. Like that's I to me that's a valid question, but come on, there's something deeper here. I you know, I think I found this really um you know, uh, a scholar who was very influential to both of us, N.T. Wright, out in uh, the U.K., he wrote a book with a friend of his, the late Marcus Borg, who mm. taught down at OSU here in Oregon and was well-known as kind of a counterpoint, more of a liberal um, Protestant uh, interpreter of the Gospels. And they wrote a book called uh, Jesus, Two Visions, I think. Yeah, I read that book. It's a great, yeah, I did too. It's great. Yeah. Um, I found a copy at like Powell's. No, um, my friend David gave me his copy that he found at Powell's mm-hmm. and it was autographed by <laughs> Marcus Borg. That was a happy oh, cool. uh, surprise. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was at a conference once where Marcus Borg was a speaker. Uh, uh-huh. May you rest in peace. At this did you assimilate? But, uh, Sorry. I, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> so this, this book, with uh, with N.T. Wright and uh, Marcus Borg, I bring this up. Uh, you know, we're talking about kind of this, like, what does it mean versus did it happen? And N.T. Wright wasn't arguing whether things happened, but as as the book works through, 
the birth stories and the nature of Jesus's ministry and how he related to Judaism and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, all these different things. Um, there was one chapter from each of them. And, you know, N.T. Wright takes more historic, like trusting that these could be historical accounts. And Marcus Borg is like, there's a deep reserve of poetry of meaning that's going on here. And while at the time and probably still now, I, I'm fairly persuaded with the way N.T. Wright reads these things, but like they aren't actually mutually exclusive. Right. Like there's a profound power to the inter a very rabbinic interpretation, frankly, of of these stories. Mm -hmm. uh, like you read Jewish reflection on their own stories, rabbinic reflections and on, on, on Jewish story. And it reads like Borg. It reads like kind of how we're talking about some of these things, whether it's the demonic or the transfiguration right. or miracles. Yeah, because the important question is what does this mean? Yeah. Like, what is this about? What is the deeper reality that we see shining through here? So to speak. <laughs> yeah. Um, and every time someone forces the question of, but do you believe it historically factually happened as written? And if you deviate from even a single detail that actually happened the way it was written, yeah. you're saying that the whole thing is trash. Like that, that's not even what we're talking about. That's like not the, even the conversation. Like, why are you forcing that question? Yes. It's really distracting from what's actually important here. Mm -hmm. Which in the case of this story, in the case of the story, I'm not sure what it means, <laughs> but um, well, you know, we've been, exploring and perhaps deviating a little uh on these topics uh let's move a couple of verses down it's still part of the same story so with every head bowed to their phone please scroll to matthew 17 verse 4 with footnote g uh brandon could you read that and uh for everybody listening to him uh we're hitting on the word uh, is it booths in this? Yeah, word? Yeah. Booths. yeah. Yeah. So here's verse four. Peter responded by saying to Jesus, Lord, being here is wonderful. If you want, I'll set up three booths. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That's great. Yeah, that's, he usually says like tents, like, hey, I've got some half domes from, <laughs> all right, right, let's do this. Like, yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of camping for, yeah. you know, in the summer with my family, getting the girls and our, getting our uh, poles through the like little slots. and Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it seemed, and I've always kind of taken this to be attributed as some sort of like, oh, that Peter, he can put his foot in his mouth like nobody else. Uh -huh. It's like, he really missed the point here. Yeah. Yeah. And sure, maybe, but you, 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 following the greek prefer a different option that gives a bit more of an interesting twist than oh that peter <laughs> yeah what's interesting is i've heard so many sermons throughout my life like basically just painting the the 12 disciples as like these like comic idiots bubbling nitwits yeah yeah just like constantly getting it wrong and being really dumb uh, yeah and, and just like the more I translated this, it's like, yeah, they don't always get it right. Like Jesus later in this very chapter is kind of frustrated at how they're not quite getting it. But, but most of the examples that I've heard taught them, like, ah, they're just messing it up again. He uh, isn't, I don't think that's what's happening hmm. here. For instance, so the, the footnote G, let me read that too. That goes with that. I have on the word booths there uh, in contrast to Aaron and the Israelites running away. That's described in Exodus 34, 30 and 31. Um, that happens after uh, Moses goes up Sinai 
and mm-hmm. um it's freaking terrifying and like fire and smoke and threats of people dying if they get close to the mountain um instead of the israelites running away peter stayed and he offered to serve that doesn't sound like a bumbling idiot to me that's someone worth respect like the story in exodus Uh, he's doing the the thing he's responding faithfully in a way that his ancestors struggled to right yeah and then the word booths or tents or tabernacles or however you end up wanting to translate this is a reference to when all israel lived for many years in these like heavy duty tents we're not talking about like coleman tents right um the the men that like for a nomadic people that live daily for years their whole lives in tents these are heavy duty things these are durable real homes that happen to be portable today the the mongolian country mostly lives this way yeah Mm -hmm. it's a big thing yeah um so these structures these portable homes that people can pack up and carry with them um, that's what this is talking about and that's what happened for the entire nation of israel while they're in egypt in the desert trans traveling from egypt in the through the desert to the promised land for that 40 years and the the building if you want to call it that that was where people did worship before the the temple that was a more permanent structure was built was called the tabernacle it's the same word it's this idea of like this heavy duty tent that could be torn down and moved and reset up and so he's he's alluding like there's there's a number of points in his community's sacred stories where a centering set piece is one tense or another, whether it's like what's happening in mm-hmm. uh, the wilderness wanderings or the commandments to have this like ritual of remembering using tents or right. But you're not, yeah. you're talking about tents, not booths. What's a booth? And that, that's a historical way to translate this word. Part of where that comes from is we talk about the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. I've heard it translated both ways. Uh, for Jews who still use words rooted in Hebrew, weird. Uh, like, no, like that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, they call it Sukkot, mm-hmm. which is the Hebrew word behind the Greek word that's here. Um, and it's, it's this word for these structures that are trans that are portable mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so i i struggled here like it's not a like it doesn't really change the meaning much but i just don't really know which which is the best word for here like booths tents tabernacles sukkot yeah because uh, something yeah. that hints at the what feels to be a fairly conspicuous uh, illusion this is not just saying hey mm-hmm you got some old guys in the sun setting. You guys are probably going to need to fall asleep somewhere. Should I set up like three tots? Like, what are we doing here? What are yeah. we doing here? He's saying like, he's charging the meaning of this moment with something very practical and symbolic out of their sacred stories. Yeah. He's connecting it with Moses by connecting it with the time in the wilderness. Who happens to be there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who happens to be described as being there and Jesus is being that's, that's the, we go back to the transfiguration transformation thing. Where yes. It's like being lit up, you look back in Exodus. Like that's the significance of this is Jesus is filling the role of Moses and Peter is seeing that who came down from the mountain with his face shining. Right. Um, so Peter is not missing the significance. Came out, of this. came out of, did he come out of the tabernacle or did he come out of, from the mountain with his face shining? Um, I th- it, it was I mean, regular. Both, it was a regular both. thing. Yeah. The first time was the first time was down from the mountain. And after that, it was whenever he visited Yahweh in the tabernacle following that, that it became uh, a regular thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. But so to, to depict Peter here as like, he wants to do what now? What an idiot is right. missing it. No, he, Peter understood the significance 
of what was happening, that Jesus is the new Moses. Moses has shown up. Like, should we like spend time here? Or is this the new festival of Sukkot? Like this, this what's going on here? How can I be useful? How can I participate in this? And, and I think that matters. Like that Peter's th- Peter thought it mattered. And I think it matters for how we're seeing what is happening in the story here in this, at this point in Matthew as, as he's charting Jesus trajectory toward what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm ready to move down uh, a few verses. Uh, let's look down at verse 17. Now there's going to be three or four uh, footnotes that we're going to hit on here. It'll be O P Q and R. So, and maybe R. So uh, Brandon, would you please read that verse 17 within context? And yeah, uh, what are the, what are those four correspond to here? Sure. Yeah. O is uh, the word that I have as faithless. And then the next one is unreliable. Next one is generation. Um, Mm -hmm. And another one that ends up being important is be patient with you. Mm -hmm. Um, But that ends up being half the verse. So we'll just go through it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to start a couple of verses back. Um, So this is after they, after everything we've been talking about so far on the mountain where Jesus was transformed. Now they've come down from the mountain after this event. And it says when they reached the crowd, Someone went up to him, fell to his knees, and pleaded, Lord, have compassion for my son, because he is moonstruck and suffers miserably. He's constantly falling into the fire or the water. I brought him to your students, but they weren't able to heal him. Now we're at 17. In response, Jesus lamented, what a faithless and unreliable generation. How much longer will I be with you? How much longer do I have to be patient with you? Bring him to me. Then Jesus denounced the demon and it left him and the boy was healed from that moment on. So those first two, those first two footnotes that you have there are about faithless and unreliable. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, that's usually translated, uh, what, untrustworthy or unfaithful and uh, perverse, like a what an unfaithful and perverse generation mm-hmm. this is. Uh, I can kind of imagine, you know, I think many listeners, if you've listened to maybe one or two episodes, you've probably caught on a point where we've stubbed our toe on language towards people that kind of goes against the way Jesus says to talk, it's okay to talk about people, um, a sort of knee jerk binary, good, bad evaluations. Mm-hmm. And so these were the, the conventional translations invoke that and the words you're using are certainly making evaluations about people, but they not they in the are. same timber. Yeah. And at least any T in the first one is unbelieving rather than faithless, which isn't exactly what you're talking about. The value judgment. Yeah. Also belief and faith uh, are different. Right. Which is evangelical heresy, but <laughs> right. Yeah. They get so, used. So is the color green, I think. So. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, it's because it's part of a rainbow. Okay. And the earth. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Let's start with what I have as faithless. It is often unbelieving or some other variation. Yeah. Yeah. Let me start with the footnote. Other possible translations are untrustworthy and unfaithful. The word unbelieving would not be appropriate here. Sorry, NET. It's not about what they think which is what unbelieving implies, but it's about not being on the right track, not being reliable. Jesus coming down from the hill, like hoping for him to represent, to be able to carry on the work that he's doing 
whether he's physically present or not. And clearly they can't, at least not yet. And that's really frustrating because at this point, he is a couple of times now started talking about my time is really short. Things are about to happen soon. And Mm. they're not being able to carry on the work without him. And that is really frustrating. Really like, oh my God, what are we even doing here? Well, I mean, Um, to parallel Sinai, like Moses comes down from the mountain is like, oh my God, like you guys have like made a thing and you're worshiping it now. Right. What what the F? Like (laughs) for those of you who are not immediately familiar. Yeah. Moses goes up to the mountain. God gives him the 10 commandments. He comes back down to find Israel have made an idol out of their jewelry. It's a calf made out of gold and they're worshiping the statue they just made instead of God that he was up there just talking to face to face and just rescued this entire country from slavery in Egypt. He's like, what the F? Yeah. And he throws it to the ground. Yeah. Uh, and goes back up and is like, well, I ain't dealing with this shit anymore. <laughs> yeah, he breaks the stones the Ten Commandments are on, and then he makes them grind the golden calf into powder and put it in their water and drink it, which I have no idea what the significance of that is, but it's freaking weird. <laughs> I, love, I love those stories. Yeah. It really that's where it really feels like you're like reaching back into time. Like, I'm sure that meant something pretty wild. I don't understand. Yeah, so he he comes down from the mountain, face a glow, and is like, we got some dope updates from the big one. And they're like doing this crazy stuff that he makes them drink. And Jesus comes down, face a glow, after having mm-hmm. visited uh, with uh, Big Mo. And he's immediately has a somewhat different experience, but still has the same heart response, which is like, <laughs> like, yeah, he's pretty unhappy. Me? Are you freaking yeah. kidding me? Yeah. yeah. So he calls them. These aren't names. These aren't slant. Like he's not like slandering slurs. Them. Slurring them. Yeah. Yeah. Th- these are like actual, like, this is what I'm seeing in front of me happening right now. You're being faithless. Yeah. And you're being unreliable. And I don't think perverse is a good translation here. He, he's making a point here. Yeah. Um, so unreliable footnote P this is, this is what I have about that. The traditional translation is perverse to me. And I think probably for most people that brings to mind the idea of like a pervert, which is someone who what exploits others for sexual gratification. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has nothing to do with what's going on here. And so looking for what actually fits here uh, for a like current day American English speaking reader, um, I look at the lexicon, the dictionary for diastrepho, which is the Greek word here. And here are some of the options. Distort, turn away, pervert, uh, corrupt, turn out of the way, cause to make defection, so like, yeah, mm. running away from your duties in, in an army or something, uh, be perverse, be corrupt, be erroneous. So the context here is that he's disappointed and frustrated that his students weren't able to heal this boy in his absence. And he exclaims, and it's directed at his own students, not, which is really important here. I think this, like how to translate this matters based on the fact that it's to his own students, oh. not who he's been like berating through the entire book of Matthew up to this point of the religious leaders. Um, it's not to the corrupt and oppressive authorities here. So they may have been misguided, but they weren't the bad guys. That matters. Or the antagonists. To, yeah. use, to get the word bad out of your foot. <laughs> sure. They weren't, they weren't the enemy. They were on his side, but weren't quite getting where he hoped they would be. Yeah. Okay. And so that for me, that leads me to lean on the, of all the things that I listed as possible translations, 
mm-hmm. to lean on the one that says be erroneous, which is not how I would ever say anything. Uh, but essentially be mistaken, turn out of the way, like be misguided, like not being in the right place, misguided, misleading. But since it's a problem of faithless, I, I think it has to like it. That's part of the context, too, is that it's paired with the word faithless. Uh, unreliable seems to make the most sense to me. Like they weren't right. And that was an issue because Jesus couldn't rely on them to, to carry. Like, the yeah, work. it wasn't like you got your doctrine yeah. wrong or something. Yeah. It's not like you were really disgustingly obscene. They were trying, right? They weren't just like, oh, this kid doesn't matter. They weren't. Yeah. They're even... staying in the game. They're just not good at it. Right. And even worse, the word perverse to me leads me to towards something in like really extreme of like, this kid doesn't matter. So we're going to have sex with him or something like it. No, it's, they were trying to help him. They were trying to heal him and couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's not evil. It might be unreliable. It might mean like the, the, that people can't like lean on them to meet their needs to get the job done. Sure. But they were trying, they cared. Yeah. Yeah. So faithless and unreliable. This is not as much as wicked and perverse. Yeah. Yeah. Wicked and perverse. Yeah. Yeah. That's the conventional reading. So that that's all the stuff that really stuck out to me here that I wrestled for quite a bit with here as I was translating this. And then it it gets so you've addressed that's the more important the, stuff, yeah, 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 the more important, uh, a more nerdy, I guess, less consequential question is the traditional translation for that next word there with footnote Q is generation. What a you know wicked mm-hmm. and perverse. What a faithless and unreliable. Well, you stuck with the tradition here, generation. But not without enough um, anxiety that you felt like you. <laughs> I added a footnote. Yes. You're like, I'm sticking with the usual word, but I feel a little weird. <laughs> uh huh. It's like, yeah, I'm putting the word in there because I don't really know what else to do instead, but it doesn't seem quite right. Because um, it's not talking about like an entire generation of people, mm-hmm. like millennials or baby boomers or something. It's talking about this, like this specific group, like these specific students of Jesus who struggled to yeah, figure out what to do here. Um, so the fact that the word generation, at least in how I use the word generation, has to do with anyone born between this year and this year, anywhere ever. Like it's just so, so I don't know that generation is quite the right word. It doesn't really seem to fit. Uh, but I'm not sure what to use instead. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's it's like a sense of a group of people who all share a common description of some type. But I don't know that born between 1985 and 1997 is is the right. Yeah, like yeah. that's the that's the sense in which we use we use generation. But it'd be anachronistic to project that sort of obscurity back onto these these folks. Right. Uh, so it may it, not be the best English word if that's how we use that English word. Yeah. So what's the what are the ways that Jesus's con- contemporaries and ancestors used whatever this word is in Greek or perhaps its equivalents in through, via the Septuagint into Hebrew or Aramaic? Like, what Mm -hmm. is the word back then? Um, Did you get to look into these sorts of notions? Yeah, no, I didn't look at how the Septuagint uses word. Um, In other places, it seems at least more okay than here. Um, It's a kind of, it feels kind of Torah-ish, doesn't it? Like, yeah, there is a sense that like, this isn't about individuals. This is about the people and the individuals are part of the people. The people, the, the, the people is made up of individuals, but they're not really separable. And that, yeah. that is definitely the perspective of, of Torah. Yeah. Like metonymy is kind of a fundamental social linguistic uh, 
notion where the part represents the whole, like we call your, you call mm-hmm. your car, like my, my wheels. Um, yeah. And so a, the, this subset being a, of people, the disciples kind of being a stand in for this generation, like the present tense of the people of God. Yeah. Is that, yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I understand a more Hebraic notion of the word generation, but I'd be, I am curious yeah. now for more scholastic insights. Well, I, I think you're probably right. Like my, in the footnote that I put, I wonder if what a fa- what about translating as a faithless and unreliable group or a faithless and unreliable people might work better. And I think it's exactly what you're describing here. Um, but it's a challenge of like, you know that, and I know that, that that's kind of the Hebraic, the Midrash, the Torah perspective on what a generation might mean having that autonomous feel. Yeah. But if, but if, if this is being read by like everyday English speakers who don't have all this like cultural background knowledge because they didn't go to seminary, like what is the way to translate this to help them get a sense of what it's mm, saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can that be done in a single word or Do at least a short phrase? A, yeah. Oh yeah. A yeah. word, a phrase Do you have to drop into a footnote or, and I think this is the, the choice that other translations have made. I haven't seen you make it as much. Um, there are some that just go full tilt on it and they say, if it, if it feels culturally obscure, we're going to just kind of lean into that particularity and let you do the work of digging. We're not going to try softening mm-hmm. it. We're just going to let it be weird to you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think there are times when that's unavoidable and, and I do that too, but if it can, if it can be avoided, let's avoid it. Cause, cause this was written in the everyday speech of regular uneducated people. This yeah. isn't, that's what Koine Greek, this particular version of Greek that this was, was about. Yeah. This was not meant to be only accessible to highly educated folks. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hit that. Uh, let's hit that last one. Uh, footnote R, which is uh, for still yeah. in verse 17. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the last sentence of verse 17. How much longer do I have to be patient with you? So Oh man, that's a long footnote. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's do a flyover. <laughs> yeah. So the NAT's rendering of this to just give you a, a reference to a more traditional is how much longer must I endure you? So it's it's reasonable that he's really frustrated with them. Like that's the kind of the sense the sense of what's happening here. And so how must how long must I endure you gets at that. Um but it's not paying attention to like what we were talking earlier about not being the enemies that are trying to help. Yeah. I think he's feeling urgency. Hmm. There's a particular word, not just that it's coming, but that's used at the end of 16 and is used later in, in chapter 17 here. That's talking about like that all the things that he's predicting about his own death and, and, and all the like the, the stuff that's about to go down, like it's it's about to happen, not just like sometime at some point in the future. It's it's coming really soon, um, like maybe days. And he is feeling that urgency. Mm-hmm. So to say, like, how much longer must I endure you? Is really a judgment about them as people that I think is missing the point of what he's trying to say. Whereas in the context specifically, if you're paying attention to what he's at, what has been said before, what's happening, what's about to happen, it's this, how, how much do I have to be patient with your learning process? Not with you as a person It's like, yeah, I know you're learning. I am your teacher. Also I'm running out of time to keep teaching you and I, I need you to get it because I'm not going to be around forever. In fact, I'm only going to be around for like a few more days. I'm glancing at my watch. So, so right. Like I'm actually physically glancing my watch as I'm doing this right now, because I don't know that we're only recording audio apparently. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's what's happening here. And like the the re- repeated tradition of the traditional translations of tra- choosing to translate things as hyper judgmental really I, I think it detracts it distracts from the actual meaning of what's going on yes so i want to go ahead and uh cartwheel our way over to chapter 18 so in verse four of chapter 18 with uh is there a footnote on this one you know there isn't even a footnote yeah it was you know as i was looking at like what do we want to talk about tonight and uh kind of looking through this, this, this caught my attention. So great. Yeah. Could you yeah. give could you read that verse for us? Yeah. The, the words that we're looking at in particular are adopts a lower status in verse four. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll start at verse two, just to give it a little bit of context here. He called a child over to stand between them. And he told them, honestly, I'm telling you, unless you reverse course and become like children, there's no way you'll divine the divide. You'll, sorry, you'll join the divine ring. Therefore, whoever adopts a lower status, like a child, is more respectable in the divine ring. And whoever includes one of these children by my authority includes me. So more traditionally, what I have is whoever adopts a lower status, like this child, is whoever humbles himself like a child. And they're not like worlds apart, but it, it stood out as being significant enough of a significant difference to me that it, like this feels important. Uh, I don't know how how does it strike you? I, I guess for me, humbles himself is is fine. It's neat. I like it. I don't have a problem with that phrase. Uh, so I kind of look at. Uh, adopts a lower status is a little less about finding a a more faithful rendering of the text or a determination within the parameters that you've given to this project. Um, I think it's just a pleasant elaboration or paraphrase for humbles himself. Uh, Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for me, humility is about, an internal quality, um, kind of my perspective of how I'm approaching things. If I'm approaching it with humility, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to receive input. I'm thinking of other people of as at least equal with me in value. And that's kind of, kind of what humility is and therefore worth learning from and, and incorporating their perspective into to how I see things and how I respond. But the, the word here in the Greek, tapenao, uh, the definitions that, that I'm given as I look in the def- dictionary are to make low or bring low, to, to level or reduce, uh, to abase, uh, to be ranked below others. It has a lot more about status relationships not about an attitude of openness, which is how I interpret humility, which I know is not how other people always define humility either. I kind of like C.S. Lewis's humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking about yourself less. And I kind of hate it. Uh, (laughs) uh, Depending on how it's being used, I guess. Yeah. Um, But I think this is, if we're talking about maybe maybe it can be used as both in both realms, like the the relationship between us and my perception within myself, my character. Um, if those are two valid valid ways of of using the word humble or humility, this is about the status and the relationship between us, not about the internal quality. Mm-hmm, yeah, it does. You're right. It does have a more social, exter- external, shared, um, less perhaps it's more intersubjective than inner subjective uh, quality. Yeah, I dig it. So the next one's shows up in really the whole paragraph here as you've typeset it, but particularly verse six and then further mm-hmm. down in uh, actually the next paragraph, uh, verse 15. 
And this concerns the language of faltering from the path or deviating mm-hmm. from the path, which in each case is to sin or sins. Can you can you read a little bit from each of those and then we'll we'll close sure. the episode with a conversation about this decision? Yeah, yeah. So I finished my last reading with the end of verse five. So I'll start at six here, um, which is where this starts showing up. Uh, But if anyone trips up one of these little ones who trust in me to falter off the path, it would be preferable for that person to have a huge millstone hung around their neck and dropped in the middle of the sea. The world that produces such hardship had better watch out. It's inevitable that hardship happens, yet the person who distributes the hardship had better watch out. So if your hand or your foot trips you up, cut it off and throw it away. It's more beneficial for you to go through life missing a hand or a foot than to have two hands and two feet and be tossed into the fire that burns indefinitely. If your eye trips you up, pull it out and throw it away. It's more beneficial for you to go through life with one eye than to have two eyes and be tossed into the fiery valley of Hinnom. Uh, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip forward to what we were talking about in 15 here. Uh, so if a fellow child of God deviates from the path, go make it clear with them, clear to them when the two of you are alone. If they listen to you, you have regained your fellow child of God. Mm. Mm. So yeah, usually it's uh usually it's sins, isn't it? It's, Seemingly so. Uh, it depends on what translation you're looking at. So the English Standard Version, ESV, or the New English Translation, NET. Yeah, you're right. The word sin appears in there a whole bunch of times. Yeah, I mean, that's such a, um, that verse six, just to read that again. But if anyone trips up one of these little ones who trust me, the falter off the path, it would be preferable that that person have a huge millstone hung around their neck and dropped in the middle of the sea. <clears throat> now that's, that's often just used for, I mean, often even kind of shaming language. You know, don't, mm-hmm. don't, ca- don't cause your brother, don't cause someone to stumble. Don't cause right. someone to sin. Right. Um, yeah. And like, so, so, so don't wear low cut things. Otherwise a boy will have an erection and oh, gosh. You, you're going to hell because of that. Oh um, man. <laughs> Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Well, let me read the NET's version of that sentence here. Uh, and then let me comment on that. Uh, yeah, but if anyone yeah. causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a huge millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the open sea. Man, we keep getting Game of Thrones references in here. Yeah. Um, Specifically the Iron Islands. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, the Greek word hamartia, that is what we traditionally think of as the word sin, appears nowhere in either of these paragraphs. What? <laughs> it doesn't exist. So when ESV and NET use the word sin here, they are putting it in themselves. That's... They 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 have their theological starting point of what they point of what they think this is should be saying, and they make it say that. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with what the Greek actually says. I screamed a curse word more than once when I saw that you wrote this in our uh, host notes here for the episode. I cannot believe that it's not just, again, not like we should we should switch over hamartia from sins to deviates or something like that. Like that's what you've been doing to very mm-hmm. fruitful effect. It's not that it's not even the word isn't even in the effing Greek here. It's not even there. They're choosing that actively added it because they want to, I guess, um, which is pretty terrible. I think I, I honestly think that they're doing bad things. I don't and you know, our commitment to not using good and bad language, but they're doing bad things. You heard it here first. Um, now that's not to say that like they are every, deviating. <laughs> that's not to say this. that like yes, they they are honestly they really are. But it's not to say that well you have to read my translation 
mm-hmm. in order to get the right version. Like, no, there are there are other translations that handle this in ways that I wouldn't call bad. Okay. Or that um, I wouldn't call shitty. That's the right. that's what's found in translation of Brandon by Brandon. Yeah. Uh, so NIV, there are lots of problems with the NIV, but it it translates this particular thing pretty pretty okay. Um, and NRSV same. They they the use the word pitch there. Yeah, yeah. I'm not necessarily endorsing these translations. Pretty okay. Mine. It's pretty 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 okay. Yeah, this is not an endorsement. Don't quote me on this. Uh, but they're at least faithful to what the Greek is saying here. Yeah. Um, they're using the word stumble, which is pretty literally what scandalizo, the Greek word, actually means. Scandalize. That's where we stumble. get the that's where we get the English word scandalize. Yep. Um, which is a little bit hard to connect the dots there in some some ways. Yeah. But, but sin, however, is just wrong. It's just not there. <laughs> yeah. Like you've had to make editorial deci- translation decisions where you're putting words that are also not there, but in an attempt to recognize you're recognizing that there's this pile of or this cloud of synonyms that you kind of mm. need to figure out how to swim through to like find the right thing and right. in this case it's a metaphor and sin isn't one of them it's no. just not it's just, like it's just th- not here there's no way to justify this yeah and and when i do like bring in something like adding a word like to the path or something like that, where I'm trying to like bring in like con- contextual ideas to help explain a, a word that I'm filling out. Which a little every bit. translation does some of. Yeah. Which every translation does, which is I think how the ESV committee and the NIV committee would justify using the word sin here. Mm-hmm. Um, is they're trying to bring in from the context words, like concepts that are related, even if it's not words that are related. I put a footnote in there and explain it. This is what I'm doing. This isn't in the Greek here, but this is how I'm trying to like make this feel like it makes sense. Yes. I, I try to make that transparent. Mm-hmm. And NET and NESV, or sorry, I don't know. There's no such thing as NESV. NET and ESV. <laughs> um, That's what we're going to call this translation. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. And NET does that a lot in other places. There, that's one of the reasons why I keep actually looking at them, even though I feel like they make the wrong decision a lot of times, is because they're really transparent. They have a lot of footnotes about what they're doing with their translation, trying to be really that's transparent in, that, about that's how a sign they of integrity. That. Yeah. So I disagree with them fairly frequently, but I appreciate their transparency in their footnotes. Yes. Um, but they don't have a footnote here acknowledging this. And Curious. that frustrates me. Yeah, that's my eyebrows raised. Yeah, so switching over to like falter from the path, like if the image is one of stumbling and hardship and tripping up or faltering, you're just like surfacing that metaphor and saying that actually does the job pretty well. Let's just mm-hmm. let's read the story as it is without this um, invoking this massive binary of, and it will just every, everything that goes along that we've hit on in all, in so many other episodes of this category, this notion of sin, which is, which has all of these consequences and that's tied to historic theologies where the core narrative of the Bible of, of the Christian Testament is uh, scriptures as well as well as the work of Jesus and the, the gospel is rule breaking and now being a piece of shit. And then mm-hmm. God's being resolution bad. being bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, what God does in response to the fact that you were born a rule breaker, which is weird somehow and, automatically. Yeah. Automatically are a rule breaker, which feels like cheating. Um, and yet you'd think it'd be Satan that would do that anyway. Yeah. Th- this, sidesteps that and just said we're not even going to get into this we're just going to oddly enough going to take the bible a little bit more literally here and say the metaphor can carry itself it can carry itself don't be afraid of the metaphor do not be afraid of the metaphor yeah yeah there are so many 
times where there's like debt language and language. It's, there's not a, like a word for this, but like language that's con- kind of connected to this metaphor of like walking a path mm-hmm. that gets used over and over and over again. And weirdly trying to translate things with what it means as opposed to what it literally says actually makes it harder to track the meaning Oh, mm-hmm. um, because it loses the connection to these other words yeah um, so it like again this isn't this isn't Paul but I think I mentioned last time like in Paul there's this the he uses the word walk as a metaphor for how you live but if a translation and some of them do translate it as so even though the meaning is how you live Mm -hmm. if you translate it trying to make that clear which i feel like it's not that hard to figure out when you use the word walk in that context to know what he's talking about so when you try to like maybe over dumb it down to make it super clear you you lose the connection like oh paul uses the word path like walk to talk about following the path that Jesus talked about a whole bunch. Uh-huh. And there are lots of other words that go with that of like, not of like stumbling off the path, sidestepping off the path, uh, deviating from the path, following him on the path, the narrow gate to enter the path. Like there are all these things that keep coming back to this image of a path to represent a life that is in line with Christ's teaching of how to live that, that does all the things that Christ is trying to accomplish. Yeah. But when you just say how you live, it completely disconnects it from all of that. Yeah. Like don't, don't discount the power of a metaphor, right? These people, the early Jesus movement was called the way or the followers of the right. way which is from the greek word hadon which means road or path or way so it's it's exactly what i'm talking about when i say the path yeah. is i'm translating with a different but also it's the same it's the same meaning in english just a different synonym yeah hmm. so stumble or what i have is falter off the path skandalizo it's part of that same like family of metaphors that are all interconnected. But if you just translate that as sin, you lose all the connections there and you add in a whole bunch of other weird baggage that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now full disclosure, I had a really hard time with this particular passage because it uses scandalizo like a whole bunch of times. Hmm. And so if you look at verse seven and this isn't settled. So I'd love some feedback actually on how to do this because I was struggling. And this is, I didn't use a path metaphor after my whole long rant about how important that was. Um, the world that produces such hardship had better watch out. It's inevitable that hardship happens, yet the person who distributes the hardship had better watch out. Um, all three of those instances of hardship are from the scandalizo. Oh. And so I'm trying to figure out, I think that's what it's talking about. And I couldn't figure out how to make it work with the path metaphors. Yeah. How to hold to the, hold the metaphor. Yeah. The, the tripping stumbling. Aspect. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you have ideas or if a listener has ideas of how to get those ideas to fit together, that would be great. But at this point, uh-huh. I want to at least be like really transparent in that. That's what's happening here is that. So he talks about don't make a child stumble or falter from the path the world that produces such stumbling that leads to hardship that hurts people when, then when they're stumbling Um, it's inevitable that 
hurting people, hardship, stumbling happens, but whoever is the cause of that is they got something coming. Makes me think later in the story about Judas. Oh um, yeah. Now. Yeah. Now I'm determined yeah. as one who really enjoys editing and writing. Mm-hmm. What would be a better way of constructing that verse? Yeah. I think I did it like three different ways before coming to this, not as a final draft, but just as a screw it. This is where I'm leaving it for now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like finding a word that invokes the, has continuity with this broader pattern. It's not a deep pattern. It's like a surface. It's a conspicuous pattern. Once that it's translated, honestly, more literally, uh, well, I think it'd be great to let's end this episode with the question mark and the dot, 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 not the uh, exclamation point. <laughs> sure. I am really curious about that. And I, I uh, invite all of the listeners to trust the lack of resolution, mm-hmm. the lack of finality here. This is not an authoritative project. It is a project of, as the first word in the name of this show suggests, curiosity and discovery. And that's shared. That's shared with you all. So, uh, yeah, jump in in whatever way you can, whether it's uh, any of the social networks that we're on uh, or if you know us personally, reach out to us. We'd love to hear. Or if you are a supporter of the show, comments on it. (laughs) And so other people can join that conversation, too. So, yeah, that that wraps us up this week. We are, as always, grateful that you got nerdy with us this week. The easiest way to support Found in Translation is to leave us a rating or review in your podcast player of choice. That makes it easier for more people to find the show. Second best way to support this show is to become a sponsor for as little as five a month, $5. When you do that, you get comment access on the Translation's Google Doc and the satisfaction that you are supporting exceptionally nerdy independent media You can find the link to join the community in the episode's notes. The music you're listening to is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Found in Translation was produced by Perry FM on Chinook land. Goodbye, Brandon. Bye, Brandon. Bye, everybody.